We just came from an incredible parasha that probably opens the eyes back to history more than any other parasha simply because of what took place in the last century. And when I say the last century, I mean literally just the last 100 years. Many people don't know, but there are incredible documentaries that were written about the Ark of Noah, the Teva, and the story that the Torah we just read this past week, how Noah was given the opportunity to be called Sadiq. You know, there are only three people in the Torah that was called Sadiq. Noah was called Sadiq, Yosef was called Sadiq, and Moshe was called Sadiq. Only these three. And there's something very powerful and very common between these three. They were the only three that were zocheh to feed the entire world. Noah, when he started yet the world again, so to speak, and went to plant and started over, everything he was about to plant and give forward was going to be the root of all the food to feed the world. Yosef at Sadiq, well, that's a no-brainer. The seven years of famine, the world would not have survived if not for the fact that Bore Olam gave him the incredible interpretation to be able to supply for the good years to be able to carry the bad years. Yosef fed the world. Hence, Yosef at Sadiq. Moshe Rabbeinu, Rashi mentions in the parasha that the Jewish people were zochet to the man. We all know that there were three shepherds, Moshe, Aharon, and Miriam. But each one, in their merit, the Jewish people merited as well. Because of Aharon, we merited the Ananiakavod, the clouds. It's amazing, by the way, I want to let you know that it wasn't that the clouds just came about thanks to Aharon, but rather the rabbis teach us that the very vapor that came off of the mouth of Aharon, we spoke about this, the vapor that came off of the mouth of Aharon went up and created clouds. The vapor of such holy words, of such a holy person, who his life only spended words of Ohev Shalom and Rodev Shalom. So these were vapored words of Shalom. Those words went up and formed clouds like the way vapors do. So those clouds that emanated from the vapor of the mouth of those Shalom words of the Ish Shalom Aharon HaKohen were clouds that were built with Shalom. And that's exactly why sometimes we nickname the Sukkah, Sukkah Shalomecha, the Sukkah of Shalom, because the Sukkah is to remind us of the clouds, the Ananiakavod, which were made from the words of his maper Shalom. And that's why these clouds wrapped itself around the Jewish people and protected them, because there's no greater protection than the protection of Shalom. There's no greater blessing than the blessing of Shalom. And that's why the Jewish people, as long as they were inside those clouds, they were blessed with every blessing. They had central heating, central air conditioning in a desert. Their clothing never got dirty. Their clothing grew on them because within those clouds, you were protected by the incredible blessings and forces of Shalom. It's amazing what Shalom is. So we got the clouds in the merit and off the vapor of Aharon. We got the vital water supply. I mean, think about a desert without water supply. 
we got the Be'er Miriam in the Zichut of Miriam. But in the Zichut of Moshe Rabbeinu, we were Zochet to the food, the man. And Rashi tells us over there, not just Kalal Yisrael was Zochet to the man, the whole world was Zochet in those 40 years to their nourishment of food in the Zichut that there was a Moshe Rabbeinu living in the world at that time. And Rashi writes, in the Zichut of the Tzidkut of Moshe, Shehut Sadik Gamor, we were Zochet to get the man. So Moshe was also called, at least in Rashi, a Tzadik. Why? Because in his merit we were fed. So Noah fed the world, Yosef fed the world, and Moshe in his Zichut the world was fed. Therefore all three are called Tzadik. Because it's Tzadik, you know it's funny, we call people Tzadikim. But we never saw it this way. We always thought that the reason why they're called Tzadik is because they're righteous. Because they follow Hashem. They have a long Amidah. They give out Berachot. They learn Torah all day. They're great Tzadikim. And that's true. There's no question that that's true. But take a look how the Torah uses the term Tzadik with a different connotation here. A concept of being able to be there for others. To feed others. To plant for others. The world is nourished in the Zichut of these three great ones that were called Tzadik. It's an amazing idea, if you think about it for a minute. Noah was one of them, and therefore he was called Ish Tzadik. But at the same time, Noah, although he was a Tzadik to feed the world, there were many things that the Chazal talk about that Noah fell short. He gave food to the world, but he should have given Musar to the world. And because he was not able to get his generation to return into Shuvah, and because he did not pray for his generation, he needed a great tikkun, which many, many years later came out through the great Moshe Rabbeinu. And there are great connections between Noach and Moshe. Noach started out as Ish Sadiq, but then later on in the parasha, what they call them? Ish Ha'adama. Moshe Rabbeinu, in his, the beginning of his life, started out as Ish Mitzri, the Torah calls him. But then at the end of his life, what does the Torah refer to him? Isha Elohim, the man of God. It's funny. Noah started out strong, but then ran out of gas. <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu started out Ish Mitzri, but then turned out to be Moshe Rabbeinu, Isha Elohim. And therefore, what Noah lacked and came, fell, up, fell short, Moshe Rabbeinu actually capitalized on. And there are, bless you, there are many connections between these two. They're the only two in the entire Torah that were both put in a teva. I don't know if you ever have that. Noach went into the teva, and that little, how would we call it, box of some sort that Miriam, his sister, put baby Moshe Rabbeinu into, the Torah calls it a teva. It's the only two times in the entire Torah that the word teva is used. Once by Noach, and once by Moshe, because there's a great connection between the two. According to the Arizal, Moshe Rabbeinu was actually a Gilgul of Noah. He was here to correct what Noah came up short. Noah didn't pray for the generation. Moshe Rabbeinu prayed and prayed and prayed for Klal Yisrael. And in the zikhut of his prayers, Hashem finally told us on the day of Yom Kippur, Salachti Kidvarecha, I forgive you for the Egel. 
And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem, you got to listen to me. Because I'm praying. I'm making up what Noah didn't do. He didn't pray for his generation. I'm going to pray for my generation. And now that I'm doing what I was meant to do, you need to hear those prayers so that my mission won't be in vain. And says Moshe Rabbeinu, if you don't listen to me, then wipe me out, erase my name from your Torah. What was the words that he said? Mecheni na, backwards, that's Ani Noach. He's telling Hashem, Ani Noach. I was put into a teva as a young boy. And I'm here to fix him. He fed the world, but he didn't give the world Musar. Moshe Rabbeinu gave Kali Yisrael Musar. He fed the world, but he didn't pray for the world. Moshe Rabbeinu had to come back and pray for the world to fix Noah. It's an amazing idea. This is a brilliant idea from the Arizal HaKadosh. And by the way, not that I came to say that this wasn't my speech today, I'll be honest with you. But once we're here, that's why his name was Moshe. Because after Miriam put Moshe Rabbeinu into the little Teva and put him on the Nile River and sent him floating... Sure enough, later on, who finds him? Batya. Batparo. This is an incredible thing. Because if you look in the Pasuk when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, his parents named him seven different names. You got to see the Rashi. Rashi gives you every name you can imagine. Tuvya, Abigdor. I mean, unbelievable names they gave this baby because he lit up the whole house. He lit up the whole house. So they said, wow, this is an amazing baby. And they gave him seven different names. And not one name stuck. Look at that. The parents give names and they didn't stick. But a stranger gives a name and that name sticks. How does that work? It's incredible. I've heard at times that a father gave the baby one name and the mother gave it the other name. And there already it's a toss-up which name sticks. But a stranger? How does that happen? How does somebody else name your baby? And that's the name that they're remembered by. That's not supposed to work. But Hashem had a great message for all of us. Because what was the name? Moshe. Why did she name him Moshe? So Batya tells you, Min mishitihu. This one was the one that was drawn from the waters. She was able to see Alpiruach HaKodesh that this baby was really Noah. This was the one that was saved by the waters. And that was the idea that Miriam had. You know, if you want to save a baby, now don't try this at home. You don't take an infant that was just born and put him in this little uh, Fisher Price boat and put him in the Nile River. That's not the best place for the survival rates of babies. There are alligators. There are all different types of stuff going on in the Nile. Especially since the Nile actually was one of the rivers that overflowed. Could you imagine what that would happen? And yet, her idea, her brainstorm was, you know how I'm going to save this baby? I'm going to put him in the Nile River. Are you joking me? That's the way you're going to save a baby? Take the kid, run. Uh, I don't know, put him in a tree. That's what you're going to do? She says, yes. You know why? Because she also knew that this baby is Noah. And the way he was saved in round one was through water. And the way he'll be saved in round two is through water. And therefore, what do you do with baby Noah slash Moshe Rabbeinu? You put him in an ark 
and you put him back in the water and that's where he'll be saved again. If it works once, it works again. And that's exactly what Batya said. Oh, here he is! Moshe, the one that was drawn from the waters. That's why that name stuck, because that was his essence. You can give people the world, but if you haven't given him something to believe in, you've given him nothing. This is a powerful idea. You can give people the world. Mamash, look at this. Noah fed the whole world. He fed him. Yes, he did feed him. But you know what? He was supposed to pray for them. He was supposed to give them Musar. He was supposed to give them more than just a physical existence. He was supposed to ignite their spirituality. And Kozman, he didn't do that. He was not finished. He was not, his mission was not done. He had to come back and fix and correct as the great Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban Shal Yisrael. And that's why a lot of times in life, you have people like Noah. They start out so good, so strong. East Sadiq. They're out there doing for people and doing for people. And then later on, Isha Adama. They run out of steam. Or sometimes people tell me, Rabbi, I did enough. I did enough. I want to chill. I want to, I want to retire now. I did a lot for the community. I did a lot for the shul. I did a lot for the tzibor. I'm going to take a break. Listen, no one says you can't take a break. Only the rabbis aren't allowed to sleep. Everybody else, enjoy. We take vacations all the time. But let it be a vacation that's going to springboard your abilities to come back stronger. There's no such thing as early retirement in Judaism. Matter of fact, in Judaism, there's no such thing as retirement at all. We only retire when we retire. That's it. Up until that point, we're grabbing and grabbing as much good as we can do. And we're giving it our all to be able to do Avodat HaKodesh. It's an amazing idea. That's the name Noah. What does Noah mean, ladies? Noah, to rest. Lanuah, to rest. To be comfortable. You're right. It is to be comfortable. Noah, to rest. To be comfortable. To take a break. Hashem says, my friend, Adam le'amal yulad. You were born in this world to accomplish. You were put here to do great things. Rest, you'll have 120 years. After 120 years, you'll rest and rest and rest. But up until that point, you got to grab and grab. And because of that, Chazal tell us, don't look at Noah. Look at Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu understood that he was a man on a mission. And he was here not just to do for Klal Yisrael, but to give them everything he had, like a real Rebbe. He didn't sleep, not day, not night, until he knew that Klal Yisrael was okay. And he took bullets for Klal Yisrael, Moshe Rabbeinu. And he took the blame for Klal Yisrael. And how many times Hashem was upset, and Moshe Rabbeinu said, don't be upset at them. Scary to tell you what the Gemara, Mesechet Berachot says. Says the Gemara, when Moshe Rabbeinu went to defend the Jewish people after the Egel, you know what he said to God? I, I, if I didn't see this in the Gemara, I never believe it. 
The Gemara said that there are three people that spoke to God in a way that wasn't so respectful. And one of them was Moshe. When was that? After the Eger Moshe Rabbeinu said, Hashem, it's your fault. Vidi Zahav. Natata lahem yoter midai zahav. You, the Pasuk says, Vidi Zahav in Dvarim. But it's a remez to what Moshe said to God. You gave them too much gold. You gave them way too much wealth. You gave them way too much gold. It went to the heads. And when someone has an enormous amount of wealth, they tend to start forgetting God. Forgetting who gave it to them. Suddenly they feel the power. They feel the kavod that the wealth brings. And they don't remember that it was given to them. It's not theirs. They were handed it to them for the moment. V'dizahav. Moshe Rabbeinu went and stood up for Klal Yisrael like nobody else. But that's what made him the great Moshe Rabbeinu. And although he said words that were strong, the Gemara says, at the end of the Gemara over there, the Gemara says that God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Yasher kochacha, meaning chazaku baruch. God gave Moshe Rabbeinu a chazaku baruch for standing up and fighting for the Jewish people. Wow. That goes to show you what Hashem really loves. He wants every Jew to give everything they got. To understand that we were here to accomplish. We were here to do. And never to sit back on our laurels and say, that's it, I did enough. Noah, I'm going to relax into retirement. There's no such thing. With this in mind, I wanted to bring out the great concept of the rabbis. They talk about the Mabul and God's promise. Hashem says, I will never bring another national calamity again. So ladies, relax. The world is safe. Hashem promised. Matter of fact, we make a blessing on a rainbow. And part of the wording of the blessing is, Zohar Habrit, God, you remembered your promise. Because Hashem reminds us, when the rainbow comes about, the reason why it's not a good thing to look at is because really it's a signal that if not for that promise, boy, boy, what would be happening in the world? But because He made that promise, Hashem says, I'm going to give you the reminder. You guys got to shape up. Zohar Habrit. Hashem remembered His promise. And therefore He said, He'll never do another Mabul again. Ladies, I want to ask you a question. A great debate in the words of the rabbis. When Hashem promised that he'll never bring a mabul again, did he mean just water? Or did he mean any style of national calamity? Did he mean that he'll never bring a flood again? Or was the promise that he'll never punish the entire world in its entirety again? Which is what we call a national calamity. Now, if you want to see the words, this is an amazing idea that's debated by the Maharsha in Mesechet Zvachim. He writes that there's a very famous Gemara, and this is his proof. He's looking to prove that Hashem really promised He'll never bring any style of national calamity again, not just water. And that's very, it's a very good feeling. We got this guy out in uh, North Korea with a hydrogen bomb. That's very good to hear. That, that makes us feel good. And because of that, 
says the Maharsha, I'll prove to you my point. The Gemara over there in Zvachim is talking about that the Goyim came running to their prophet. Who was the prophet of the Goyim? Bil'am. He was their prophet. So anytime they panicked in a spiritual way, he was the go-to guy. So they go running to Bil'am and they say, Bil'am, the world is shaking. The ground is rumbling. I think God is coming to destroy the world again. Like he did in the way in the days of Noah. Little did the Goyim know what really was going on that day. Bilam turns around and says, no, no, my friends. God is not destroying the world. God promised that he'll never destroy the world again. The Goyim said, but wait one second. God only promised that he'll never bring another flood to the world again. Maybe this time, instead of bringing a mabul of water, he might bring a mabul of fire. Bilam says to the Goyim, no. God promised that he'll never bring a national calamity to the entire world in one shot like he did in the days of Noah. He'll never do it again. Not water, not fire, not nothing. When the Goyim heard that, oh, they felt better. So they said, okay, so, hey, Bilam, give us the inside scoop. So what's going on? Why is the world shaking? Why is the ground rumbling? Why is there lightning and thunder day and night? Bilam says, because today is Matan Torah. Hashem oz la'amo yiten. God is giving to his people oz. Oz is the ingre- incredible strength, the incredible gift, the incredible treasure. He's giving to his people his treasure. He's giving to the Jews the Torah today. That day was the sixth day of Nisan. Of Sivan, excuse me. The sixth of Sivan. Matan Torah. When the Goyim heard that, they said, oh, okay, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> We thought he was coming to destroy the world again. If that's the case, Hashem Oslam Oiten. You know what the Goyim answered, says the Gemara? Hashem Yivarech et Amo Bashalom. God bless them. As long as it doesn't affect us. Alamar, you know, all good, and we're off. And that's the end of the Gemara. Says the Maharsha, what do you see from this Gemara? It's very clear that Bil'am pointed out that Hashem promised not just water. But he will not bring any type of national calamity to the national community, meaning the entire world, ever again. But on the other hand, ladies, there's another great rabbi who came to dispute, dispute this point by the name of the Aruch Laner. And he says, I have a proof that when God promised that he'll never bring another Mabul, he only meant water. But other styles, oh, he can bring whatever he wants. Where does he see that proof from? I mean, this is an open Gemaran Zvachim that the Maharsha just showed us. The story of Bil'am is very clear. He says, I have a Midrash in Parshat Shemot. In Parshat Shemot, the stargazers, the Khartoumim, they came to Paro and they said, Paro, the Jewish Messiah is about to be born. The one that's going to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, that's going to beat you, is about to be born. Paro says, what? So what do we do? How do we stop him? How do we stop this from happening? So they came up with all different types of ideas. We'll do this, we'll do that to the babies, we'll do this to the babies. A whole thing the Midrash explains. Then finally the Midrash says, they turned to Paro and said to him, you got to be careful. Because the God of the Jews, you know the way he works? Everything he does is midah keneged midah. 
measure for measure. So if you hit his people with fire, he's going to hit you back with fire. If you hit his people with, God forbid, plagues or with uh, whippings or, or avodah, he's going to hit you back the same way. And therefore, be careful. Whatever you're going to throw onto his people is going to come boomerang right back at you. So Paro said, so then I can't do nothing. I can't hit them with anything. Says the to me, not true. There's one thing you can hit them with and you'll get away with it. We'll beat the system. Really, what is that? Water. Throw the babies into the water. Says Paro, but, but then he'll come and he'll drown us. See, that's funny. <laughs> he actually, you know, okay, you get it. But he's going to come and drown us. Says Khartoumim, no, what are you talking about? He promised he'll never bring another mabul of water to the world again. So water is the one area that you can hit him on, and he can't hit you back because he has a promise. He promised he'll never bring mabul of water again. Little did they know that Hashem promised not to bring a mabul of water again to the world, not to one country. And little did they know that this wasn't a mabul. But sometimes, instead of bringing the cow to the water, you got to bring the water to the cow. In this case, instead of bringing the water to the cow, he brought the cow to the water. Instead of bringing the water to Egypt, he brought the Egyptians to the Yamsuf. And I guess the rest is history. But what do you see from that Midrash, says Aruch Laner? What was Hashem's promise? Was it no national calamity at all? Or only water? Says the Midrash, only water. And that's what they told Paro. He promised only water. So that's the only area you can hit him in. Meaning that they understood that Hashem's promise was only never to bring another flood of water. But a different national calamity that he was up for. That he can do. So ladies, which one is it? We have a great machloket. Huge rabbis. The Maharsha and the Aruch Laner. And the answer is, it doesn't make a difference. As long as Klal Yisrael has a Torah and is learning Torah, it makes no difference. But what do you mean, Rabbi? I got this Mejnun case out in North Korea with a hydrogen bomb. Rocket man. <coughs> oh, Rabbi, that's not a joke. He's saying that he's going to take the, he's going to, you know, vert the uh, United States to rubble. And then I got a whole Mejnun regime out in Iran that we're uh, redoing the deal, so to speak, however you want to call it, or debunking the deal. I don't, I don't know how exactly the political term is. And at the end of the day, they're also calling now that they're going to turn around and throw destruction on the United States. Rabbi, what's going on over here? Ketz kobasar, ba'ulifanai, right? Ketz kobasar, the end of all mankind is coming before us. Ketz kobasar. You know what ketz stands for? Tzvon Korea. You never, you never saw that? Okay, anyways, I shouldn't have said that on tape. Uh, but this is, the, the, this is the point here. The point over here is we got one crazy guy with a hydrogen. We got a, another regime that, 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 that's on the brink of nuclear. Aren't you nervous? And the answer is, when it comes to any national calamity, whether it be water, whether it be fire, whether it be whatever it might be, it still comes back to one point. As long as we have Torah amongst us, it makes no difference. You see, because we learned an amazing lesson in Egypt. And we learned this lesson throughout history. You could have a Jew and an Egyptian 
both standing in the same puddle. And the half of the puddle that the Jew was standing in remained water. And the half of the puddle that the Egyptian was standing in was blood. You could have a makat bechorot where the mashchit himself comes down to the earth and is slaughtering a slaughter that hasn't ever been heard in history from then till today. And yet, the Jewish people is living in the house next door. And not only are they untouchable, they're celebrating a holiday. How's this possible? How does Hashem able to play checkers with the Jews living amongst the Goyim, jumping different moves, only taking out what he looks for. It's like those heat-seeking missiles that knows how to differentiate between what exactly it's being shot at to take out only its target and nothing around it or in between. But Borei Olam could do that. One stipulation. Like when they asked the great Reb Chaim Kanievsky Shalita, they said to him, what should Jewish people do? now in these days of the great Chevle Mashiach. How are you saved from Chevle Mashiach? And answers Reb Chaim Kanievsky, the words of the Gemara in Chelek and Masechet Sanhedrin, there's only two ways. Limut Torah and Gemilut Hasadim. Limut Torah and Gemilut Hasadim. Gemilut Hasadim is a merit. Limut Torah is a shield. There's two different things going on here. And you can take one of those two angles. And both of them saves the Jewish people from Chevle Mashiach. Rabbi, how do you know we're in Chevle Mashiach? Ah, I thought you never ask. The great Rebbe Hanan Wasserman, Zechet Tzadik Lebracha, he was told by his Rebbe, the Hafez Chaim, that the great war of Gog Magog, what the world refers to as Armageddon, actually has three parts. Hafez Chaim said that the first part already started in World War I. Hafez Chaim told Rabbi Chana Wasserman that although the first part started in World War I, there's going to be a lapse of about 20 years until the second part of Gog Magog will kick off. And he did say that the second part of Gog Magog will be, make the first part look like nothing. It'll look like, 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 like nothing. And then said the Chafetz Chaim, that after that, there's going to be a stretch of about many years. He didn't say a number. He said there's going to be a long stretch of years. And then finally, the third part, and he says, that part, I can't tell you how long it's going to last. It's very interesting. In Hosha'anot and Hoshana Rabbah, which we all know, Alpi Kabbalah, the concept of Armageddon, Gogumagog, is supposed to finish on Hoshana Rabbah. That's why Hoshana Rabbah is the day of the Ushpizin of David HaMelech. Because that's the day of Ben David Avdecha, the day of Mashiach. It's an amazing idea. How on this great day, you know what we say in the Hoshanot? Hoshana, Shalosh Sha'ot. Hoshana. God, save us from those three hours. Save us. Three hours? <laughs> Which three hours? Which three hours? What three hours? There are many different pshatim in which three hours we were referring to when we were saying on that great day, Hosha'ana, Hosha'ana, save us, save us. Which three hours were we crying out for saving? But according to Yeshua Leib Diskin, 
When he was asked about World War III, he said something amazing. He said he doesn't think it's going to last more than three hours. And he gave us a little hint. Now, to say this once upon a time when wars were fought on horses, with tanks, with air force, I mean, three hours? Who would ever believe such a thing? But today we live in a different time. We live in a different time that a war could actually take place and be over in three hours. So we scream out, Hoshana! On what day? The day of Gog and Magog. Save us from three hours. Save us from these crazy goyim that are butting heads together. I mean, Adraba, we would love the West and the East to go at it together. And we wish them all the luck in the world. Wipe each other out, but leave us alone. Leave us alone. But that's never the case. World and its politics always evolve around the Jewish people in Klal Yisrael. You take in the news, you'll see it every day. And if that's the case, we ask Hashem, like the Chafetz Chaim said, that once this process already started, and here we are in the United States, and you have crazy people in the north, and crazy people in the Middle East, we need an unbelievable Shmirah. There was never a time that we needed the Shmirah of Torah. And I believe that that's the reason why what's going on in Israel today with the yeshiva boys is going on. I don't know if you heard about all the protests and the Havganot of wanting to take all the yeshiva boys out of the yeshiva and to send them off to be drafted. And that means yeshivot are going to be closed for all these thousands of yeshiva boys. To play with the Torah of Israel is a scary thing. There's an iron dome like we remember in the last war. But there's also a spiritual iron dome. And that's our Torah learning. When we have the Torah and it's learning, we have this amazing iron dome. It's a protection for us. And therefore, Rabbi, what's going to be? What's going to be? I don't know. But I do know one thing. That as long as we had Torah and Am Yisrael, and as long as we will have Torah and Am Yisrael, we don't have what to worry about. Because that's what the Gemara says. What saves a person from Heble Mashiach is the Torah itself. And if this is the case, yes, Gogumagog, whatever may end up coming about, we need to be the ambassadors of Torah in our homes. And that's why, ladies, I'm talking to you. You see, because you might think that this speech should be given to the men. And it is. Boy, is it. And they hear it from me day and night. And believe me when I tell you, any guy that walks through that door, he knows that I'm going to be a problem to him in the shul. I'm a headache to him. He knows it. And they laugh about it. In a sweet way, of course. But they laugh about it. They know that when you walk into the shul, you have to answer. You have to answer to why you are living. You have to answer to what are you doing for Klal Yisrael. Where are you in your mission? What do you have to show for the years that you lived, and what are you going to do now to turn that around? We're trying to walk away from the Noah syndrome of the guys that started out as Ish Sadiq with such a big future and such a heart to want to do great things, and later on they became Ish Ha'adama because they fizzled out. We're trying to stay away from the guys that went to Israel, learned Yomam Valayla, come back to the United States, they're on fire, they go out to the business world, and a year later, Where's the learning? What happened to all the amazing things you picked up 
and Eretz Yisrael and Yeshiva. No, 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 no. We want to be Moshe Rabbeinu. We want to be the guys that we all started out as American kids, including the speaker. And this past Saturday night, when I heard the Yankees lost the, uh, the playoffs, I felt bad. I, I, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm a rabbi. I'm in my 40s. And when I heard the Yankees lost, I felt bad because I grew up with it. We all grew up like American kids. We all grew up with the Brady Bunch and everything. I, you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. But everything else for that matter. And then later on, we realized, hey, there got to be more to this. We got to be here to do something. There's a mission. There's Borei Olam. There's Klal Yisrael. And suddenly light bulb goes on. That's what we're looking to build. And therefore, when they come through those doors, they know that there has to be a reckoning to the rabbi of their personal daily schedule of learning. It's like a daily vitamin. You can't go spiritually healthy without it. But I need your help. I need to partner up at, at all times with the wives and with the ladies, the wonderful tzidkaniot of our community so that they'll send their husbands out to learn. It doesn't have to be in the shul. This is not a paid advertisement. I don't care where you send them. Let them learn. Don't take them away from their learning. Don't drive them crazy if they get one hour a night to learn. Your best friend's birthday party doesn't need your husband. Let them learn. Your sons want to go to a yeshiva for six months after high school to taste the purity of a Torah of Eretz Yisrael in such an amazing experience. And by the way, it's good for them. It gets them to grow up. We spoil our kids. They have no independence. The moment they go out there, they learn. There's no chedame making their bed. There's no chedame doing their laundry. They have to fend. It's good. Listen to me. It's good. We're not doing good for our kids. We mommy them something off the charts. And then the moment they get married, they look at their wife like their mother. That's not a good relationship. There's big drawbacks to that. And suddenly they start demanding. And we start hearing these lines like, what do you mean? I'm working. Your job is to... Whoa, 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 whoa. Who said that there were jobs here? There was an effort here. Where does this attitude come from? Where suddenly our, our, our guys, are, uh, they, they became inadequate? The moment life hits a little hiccup and they fall into a little pothole, they don't know how to deal. Because mommy did everything. They don't know how to do anything. We have to give them an ability to stand up with a certain independence, with a certain strength, that they could be their own man. It's healthy. So we send them out for six months to Eretz Yisrael. Let them sit. Let them learn. Let them grow. Let them be a little bit independent so that they could actually learn how to live with life. And then they'll come back. They'll be more adequate for marriage. They'll be able to run a house on their own. They don't have to live downstairs from their mother. We have to understand what we're talking about here. These are big issues that we deal with. And it's so simple. We call out to the mothers and to the wives to help us that when it comes time for the Torah in your home make a stand support it don't go against it over the years of I don't know how many years I'm teaching now 16, 17 years whatever it is I spent more time 
trying to convince mothers to send their kids to yeshivot, to Eretz Yisrael, to kolel, sometimes to learning, depending. Don't get me wrong, kolel is not for everybody. And it's only for the people who are for it. If they're not for it, let them learn at night and go to work. No problem. That's my entire shul. Everybody here works during the day and comes at night and learns. Now we found a new system. We have a lot of guys that couldn't learn at night. They come home too late. And they were zonked. When they came home, they didn't eat anything. They come home, they're out. But these guys need to on their life. Or else they will not be as good as a husband as they could be. They will not be as loyal to their wives as they could be. They would not be as good of a husband to their kids as they could be if they don't have some sort of a Torah connection. And that's why I tell the wives, don't do it for the rabbi. Don't do it for God. Do it for yourself. You'll have a better husband at home. You know how many times I had situations, guys came home slamming doors, and the wife said, you know what, you know what, just eat supper and go back, go out to Rabbi Dovi, do me a favor. I said, gee, thank you. He sent them to me, Hazaku Baruch. And he comes in here and he sits down and he had a rough day in work. He doesn't want to hear from nothing and nobody. And we start learning Gemara together. And then he starts getting into it. And he starts asking questions and back and forth. 45 minutes later, an hour later, he gets up. He prays Arbit with such an Amidah because he's inspired from the learning. He goes home. I get a phone call an hour later. Rabbi, I'm sorry. I know it's very late to call. I just wanted to thank you. I sent you a roaring tiger, and you sent me back this little pussy cat. He comes home, my husband, he walks up to me and starts talking to me like a human being. He starts apologizing for the way he was slamming doors before he went out to the shiur. He starts apologizing that he didn't compliment my supper. Rabbi, who is this guy? This is my husband. Look what learning does for people. It brings out the best in them. It refines them. And it protects Kalal Yisrael. So we need to work on this together. Because as long as we have that learning, we're an immortal people. We are untouchable. No force, no evil, nothing can touch us. You have to believe in this. You have to understand. Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam. That's not just a quick phrase. That's a mitziut. It's a reality. You have this, you need nothing else. Hashem says, you take care of my Torah, I take care of you. Kalal Yisrael, look at all the blessings in the parashot b'chukotai, in the beginning when we do listen to the Torah. Look at the blessings of the Torah that says, when we are keeping the Torah, im tishmeuli, God says, if you're listening to me, you'll get the most abundance of wealth and happiness and blessing, and there'll be no plague, and there'll be unbelievable uh, happiness and simchan, just to keep the Torah and the protection. I want to share with you an amazing story, and I'll let you go. But this story is a wow. This is a wow. This is a legit wow. And you know me, I have an appetite with stories. So if I'm telling you it's a wow, this is something. I heard this directly from the guy that was in the crowd that Shabbat. We know that many of our wonderful men who are trying their best to keep ahead of their industries and be able to make a living, to be able to support their families and Torah and our wonderful community and Kalal Yisrael, many times they have to go out to China. And believe me when I tell you, I'm not a big advocate for them going out to China at all. 
And the guys in this shul know good and well that when they go, I'm on their case. I want them back before Shabbat, which many times it's very hard for them. Sometimes they have to go for a few weeks. But at the end of the day, they're out there. One guy tells me that he was there in China and uh, he had no choice. He had to stay over Shabbat. He was in the crowd. They went to Lubavitch. Lubavitch over there, unbelievable. They put up hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of guys on Shabbat. Right? It's like it's a big crowd. Really, hundreds of guys. They feed him kosher, Shabbat meals. Everyone spent Shabbat in, in Chabad, in Lubavitch. So he says that he was there in the crowd. And by the meal, an Israeli rabbi stands up. And he had this long beard. And he smiles to the crowd. And he says to the crowd, I want to tell everybody a story. I want to tell you a story about an Israeli commando. He says it was a birion. He was a powerhouse guy. Big guy. Big guy. He says, this guy, he was in one of the top elite groups in Israel in the IDF. But you know, at the end of five years after they serve, they give them a year chofesh. A year vacation. On the cheshbon of the Medina. On the cheshbon of El Al. And they'll fly him out to anywhere in the world they want. And in that year, a lot of them, we lose. And in that year, a lot of them fall very far. Well, it happens to be that this commando Israeli, this big Biryon, his five years were up, and he decided he's going to India. What is in India? But he's going. So he gets onto El Al, they fly him out to India. He's now there with his duffel bag, with his stuff. And now he starts to take on the life in India. And he's loving it. It's an adventure. He's making friends, he's meeting new people. And it's like he feels like a celebrity there. They love the Israelis there, so to speak. And sure enough, one night, he bumps into a woman, Goya, from India, by the name of Sonia. Very attractive woman. Someone who he started to date. And little by little, he actually moved in with her. Sonia tells him, I waited my whole life to meet you. And he really fell for her. And he said to himself, why do I have to go back to Israel? This is great. I found a person that I love. I found a country that's wonderful. Who needs it? And he started living in India with the mindset that he's going to stay. This went on for a few months. Now he realized that this woman, Sonia, she was an interesting lady where she had a very interesting side to her. She would go out, she'd disappear all day, and she'd come back at night. And he would ask her, what do you do? And every time he'd ask her what she did, she'd avoid the question. She wouldn't really go into detail. Till finally one night he kind of broke her. He insisted. I want to know right now, what are you into? What do you do? And she says, I'll tell you. But I hope it doesn't scare you. She is the head of this cult that's all over India. She travels all day going from one cult, one house of their cult, to the next, to the next, to the next. She's like the grand-grandma of the whole cult. And they all follow her. He said to her, what? They follow you? You mean you have all these Hasidim, he called it? All these Hasidim following you? I didn't know you were such a celebrity. She says, yes, I have over a thousand people in India in my cult that follows me. Really, what do they do? They worship me. 
Wow, they worship you. She says, yeah. He says, well, I, I, I want to understand, he tells her. Does that mean that you have different types of koach and power? She says, absolutely. He says, oh, very nice. Conversation goes from one thing to the next. And as a joke, one day he says to her, if I ever leave you, how would you survive? And she starts to laugh, but a hideous laugh, like the wicked witches of the West laugh, like, <laughs> you know, that laugh. And she says, you're never going to leave me. You can't. If you try to leave me, you'll see what's going to happen to you. Now, when he heard those words, he broke out in a sweat. He made a joke out of it, of course, and let it roll. But deep down, that really wugged him out. About a month or so later, it was coming to the end of the year. And he started thinking to himself, like the neshama of a Jew, Mani Asepo, what am I doing here? What am I, crazy? You know, in the beginning, everything is new, it's fresh, it's challenging, it looks very alluring. But after that, when you look a little deeper, skin deep, you realize, Huli, what am I doing here? What's going on? What am I, out of my mind? I got to get back to Israel. I don't belong here. And I definitely don't belong with this G. I got to get out of here. So one day he waited for Sonia to leave to spend her day doing her rounds. And this Israeli guy, he went and grabbed his duffel bag and all his stuff and he cleared out the house, took all his stuff with him, jumped into a taxi and made a beeline for the airport. The time she comes home, he already made the hezbon. The time she comes home, he's already going to be by the gate and he'll be boarding on the next El Al flight back to Israel. He gets to the airport, he goes through security, he comes up to the gate, everything is good. An hour or so later, Sonia comes home. She looks around and she realizes that the guy cleared out all his stuff. He took all his stuff and he's gone. She turned to the staff of the house and she said to him, what happened to the... They said, he ran. We heard him saying to the taxi to go to the airport. She said, ah, oh, he thinks he can leave me. She closes her eyes and she starts to say certain incantations. And as she starts mumbling the words, here is this Israeli guy by the gate in the airport. And out of nowhere, he starts to shake into convulsions. The guy falls on the floor and he's screaming. He's screaming in front of a whole crowd of people. And he's yelling and screaming, let go of me! Azovoti, let go of me! And he's screaming in pain. People were looking at them, what, what, what happened to this guy, crazy guy? They came running, they called the airport security. They brought him, they, 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 they brought in a doctor. They, they checked out the guy, nothing. But he wouldn't start shaking, he wouldn't stop screaming. Finally they said, let's take him to a hospital. The guy says, no, get me out of this country. They said, but sir, look at you. He said, I'll sign anything you want, just get me out of the country, I'm begging you. Carry me onto the plane. So the security of India and the, and the airport decided, you know what? Better idea. He's right. Why should it be our problem? Ship him off to Israel. He's an Israeli. It's their problem. So they carried him. They physically carried him through the exit and they plopped him on his seat. Goodbye. They closed the doors and the guy, the whole flight, was screaming. He was yelling in pain. 
and the stewardess came and this one and that. They called ahead to a hospital, an ambulance. They called ahead to the guy's parents. The plane lands in Ben Gurion and the security comes on and carries the guy off. This guy was a big guy. They bring him out into the ambulance. His parents was waiting for him there. They took him out to one of the hospitals. I think it was Tel Hashomer. They took him out to one of the hospitals and they had a whole team of doctors waiting to hear what is with this guy. And they started doing bidikot and bidikot and all different types of tests. Every test you could imagine from MRIs to blood tests to blood work. They couldn't find a thing. And the guy just wouldn't stop shaking in convulsions. This went on for months. And one day, a religious Lubavitcher doctor who worked in the hospital walks into the room and he walks up to this guy's father and he says to him, Tishma, I know that you're not religious, but I am telling you, we did every medical test that there is to do. There's nothing wrong with your son. It makes no sense what's going on with him. And he's screaming in such pain that even the drugs we're giving him doesn't quell the pain. Your son doesn't need a doctor. Your son needs a rabbi. The guy says, Ma, rabbi, is a rabbi, what are you talking about? He says, rabbi, he says, I'm telling you, your son, this is not a physical, this is a spiritual makkah. I'm telling you, take him to a rabbi. So the father says, I don't believe in rabbis, I don't believe in God, I don't believe. He says, I understand, but what options do you have? Look at the kid, he's suffering. Take him to a rabbi. He says, okay. Who should I take him to, he says. So this guy was a Lubavitcher doctor. He says, get on the first flight, fly to the United States, go to Brooklyn, go to Eastern Parkway, go to 770, and take him to the Lubavitcher Rebbe Zechet Tzadik And the father said, okay, you know, the Israelis, the Lubavitcher Rebbe they heard of. Every, who didn't hear of the Lubavitcher? It doesn't mean you're, you're religious, you're not religious. I mean, everybody knew. Regardless, you're religious or not, you had the picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in your falafel store. Everyone did, right? I mean, where, where, right? You ever been to Israel? Uh, right? If you didn't know better, you'd think uh, unbelievable. Lubavitcher Rebbe was an unbelievable tzaddik. He reached everybody. You have to hear this. They carried the guy back onto the plane. El Al took him to JFK. The father and his commando shaking in pain, literally went from the airport straight to Eastern Parkway, and they come in that night to 770. And the Rebbe was at the end of a Farbringen, and he was classically giving out his dollar bills. As everybody went around handing each person another dollar bill and another dollar bill. And this father didn't know what was going on. All he sees is that there's this big this big round robin that's going around, this merry-go-round that's going around in circles. So he decided to get on line and him and his son, and he's holding, the son can't stand. He's holding up his son and he's shaking and he's pushing and he's, and he's screaming and he's yelling and people are looking like, whoa, what in the world? So they let him go up. He brings his son right in front of the Lubavitcher Rebbe as he's handing out dollar bills. And the Rebbe looks up and looks at this Israeli commando and he says, one pasuk in Torah, Machashefa. Machashefa means a witch and witchcraft. Do not allow them to live. Kill them. The minute he said that pasuk in Torah, this guy drops to the floor and he gives a scream. And after that yell, he opens his eyes 
he gets up and he looks at his father and he says, Who are all these Hasidim? What are we doing here? And the father looks at the guy. And he looks at his son. And they say that the Lubavitcher Rebbe just smirked. That doesn't even say a word. And the guy went back to Israel. The guy comes back to Israel and he's as good as new. And the family couldn't believe it. And this family was clearly not going to be Chiloni anymore. But they saw an open miracle. One rabbi, one pasuk in Torah, you're untouchable. You're immortal. You're Klali Israel. You're above everything else as long as Torah enters your life. This Israeli commando, he gets on the phone and he calls India and he starts schmoozing with his old friends that he made in the past year. And people start, hey, what happened to you? We heard they carried you out of the airport. We heard they had to carry you on the plane. We heard in Israel you were yelling and screaming for months. People thought you were dead. They thought you were dead. What happened to you? He says, well, thank God I'm better now. Tell me, what's going on with Sonia? He asks them. And they say, uh, you mean you didn't hear? He says, no. What happened? He says, a little bit over a month, month and a half ago, she got into a terrible accident and she died. He said, wait, 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 what day was that? And they come back to the day, calculated to the day he was standing in front of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And at the moment the Rebbe said, Mahasheva Shefa was the moment that she was gone. Because nothing could go up against our Torah. It's the greatest protection of anything and everything. This Israeli rabbi, big smiles now, looks at the crowd in China, hundreds and hundreds of guys, their jaws dropped listening to this story. And he looks at them with a smile and he says, do you know how I know this story? Because I was the guy. I was the guy. Ah, what Torah is, magne or matzle. It doesn't matter if it comes from the north or if it comes from the east. What matters is one thing. Do we have a Torah lifestyle in our homes? Do we have the great shield of the Torah Hagadosha? Thank you, ladies, for listening.